Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 334. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 334 you're listening to. My guest today is a musician, songwriter, author, and producer, Jack Rubinacci, born in Rome, raised in the UK, and now residing in Norway. Jack has been through the music industry on both sides of the glass, including recording his debut release with one of my favorites, the great Chad Blake over at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studio. He's also recorded and mixed his own releases. He's opened for Joe Cocker, Lionel Richie, and Arcade Fire, among many others. And like many in the industry, Jack suffers from tinnitus. He's written two books on the topic, and it is the focus of our conversation in today's episode. Jack came as a referral from our good friend and studio rat, James Ivey, and I felt it was really important to have Jack on to discuss this topic of tinnitus since many people just don't. So very much looking forward to Jack coming on. Jack Rubinacci coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about Al Schmidt. Since the death of the great Al Schmidt, I have watched Andrew Sheps and Pure Mix host a great tribute to Al, as well as Greg Wells and the folks over at Mix with the Masters do the same. There's several consistent themes that keep coming up when people talk about Al. Uh, First off, people always talk about what a brilliant engineer he was. And secondly, they also talk about what a great human he was, how passionate he was about music and his friends and, and people in general. To listen to each person talk about Al's many great qualities makes me remember the few interactions I had with him. I essentially met Al twice. The first time in San Francisco at Hyde Street Studios during an AES convention, there was an event that was being put on that Al came up from Los Angeles to do. During the event, there was a moment when there wasn't very many people in the control room and I had my opportunity to chat one-on-one with Al. Al and I, you see, have a mutual friend and client in common. And we got a chance to talk about that mutual friend, had a few laughs. He posed for a picture, which I just discovered the other day and posted on uh, Instagram. The smile on our faces in that picture really reminded me of that event and how enamored of him I was, how in awe of him I was. Here's a guy who had been at the game of recording for so long. He was so good at it, had numerous awards under his belt, and yet he was the most humble and gracious person with zero hints of arrogance in him. Just a sweet, sweet person. Genuine, easy to relate to. The second time I met Al was when I interviewed him and Steve Jenowick. Once again, his demeanor was gracious and humble and welcoming. In the time since his death, I reflected on these two meetings as well as these recent memorials to him. And although midway through my own life, assuming that I'm going to live to the great age of 105, which is my personal goal, 
I feel there's still room to try to achieve the goal of being as good of an engineer and as gracious of a human being. You're never too old to make changes in your life, especially when it comes to becoming better at anything. So remember this, as you continue through your own careers and the many interactions you're gonna have along the way, always ask yourself, what would Al do? If you follow his example, odds are you're gonna be okay. There's so much more I could say about this great man, but I'll, but I'll leave it here. Here's to a great human being and a great engineer. Record in peace, Al. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jack Rubinacci here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. 
here for you is just outside of Oslo in Norway, correct? Yeah, in a place called Drammen, 35 minutes uh, south of Oslo. You and I were introduced by a former WCA guest, James Ivey, and I'm really glad that he introduced us because we're going we're gonna to get into a topic here that you talk pretty extensively about on your YouTube channel, which I will include in the show notes. And audience, we're just right up front, we're going to pronounce this differently, but it's the same thing. I'm going to say tinnitus. <laughs> Jack is going to say tinnitus. Essentially, we're talking about ringing in your ears and yeah. as well as potentially other sounds. And yeah. we're going we're gonna to go pretty in-depth into that. But before we do, I do want to get a little bit of background out of you, Jack. So where did you grow up? Uh, born in Rome. My father was a musician. So spent the first year with my father and my mother in Rome and then left Rome with my mom. Went to live in Birmingham, which is sort of uh, where I grew up, Birmingham in England. And moved backwards and forwards to Italy, Sicily specifically. I lived on the foot of Mount Etna the largest and most active volcano in Europe. So yeah, backwards and forwards. I met my dad when I was 10 years old and he told me that he was a musician. So I sort of got fascinated with it. I was with him for eight hours that first time I met him and took me around Rome and took me to where he works, which is a hotel. He's the piano bar guy. He's the guy that plays in the nice foyers in those hotels, you know. And um, he took me to this hotel where he's working and I was sort of fascinated by the whole thing. And it was a million miles from sort of, you know, my experience of life we were sort of quite poor and struggling back then so yeah and I got fascinated with this whole world of music and that sort of uh, grew up backwards and forwards to Birmingham and Italy really that's sort of where I grew up so it's sort of a have a pasta and then a cup of tea afterwards that sort of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't meet your dad till you were 10? No uh, he sort of he was not in my life until yeah about 10 11 and even after that it was sort of once a year and I'd go from Birmingham, fly out to see him, and it was a strange situation, actually, because he would play in these piano bars. He specifically played in a hotel called Hotel Chelsea in Italy, which is a very famous hotel. It's actually where Kurt Cobain OD'd in 92, actually, but many other famous people. It's one of the big hotels in Rome. And I would go over and see him, and I would fall asleep because he'd have to take me to work. So I'd fall asleep in this, you know, couple of meters away from his piano. And people would see this like 11, 12-year-old boy sleeping in this beautiful hotel. And I've often wondered whether that's why I became a songwriter because I find melodies quite easy to come by. And uh, I think it's because I maybe because I fell asleep listening to Billy Joel and Frank Sinatra sort of thing, you know? Interesting. Huh. Not meaning until 10, I'm wondering if how you felt about that when you first met him. Was there an excitement or was there resentment or anything like that? Yeah, there was no really resentment. I was sort of scared. I was, you know, I was a 10-year-old boy in a big city. I lived in Sicily and we lived like, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Like I say, at the foot of this Mount Etna and it was a village for all intents and purposes, you know? Beautiful place, but going to Rome was a big experience for me. It's like, wow, this huge city and and it was glamorous. Like I say, you know, we were quite poor back then. So it was just, a, it was a very scary experience, but I soon... I soon sort of, you know, got to like my dad and it was a very glamorous mm. experience too because he was a glamorous man, you know. So no resentment really. But I, I, I've always been fascinated with the sort of, with the fact that he's a musician and I'm a musician because I've never really quite understood if that's why I became a musician. But yeah, it was strange. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder. It's like, well, the first 10 years he wasn't there, yet you became a musician anyway. And yeah. I wonder if those those times when you first met him were 
were they formative? Were they magical? Were they subconsciously impactful on you falling asleep there meters from the, the piano? Yeah. It's I, you know, I've never been able to sort of figure that one out. Because, and the reason why is because I've often, the music that I like has always been very different to the music that he's done. You know, I mean, although I love Billy Joel and that sort of stuff, but, you know, by then I was really into rock and stuff like that. So I'm not quite sure if, if, if it was that connection. But yeah, that's sort of how, how my relationship with my father started. Mm. Well, so you did become a musician and you eventually obviously reached a professional level because as we were discussing before our call started, you actually worked with somebody that I consider a friend and uh, somebody who I am greatly influenced by, and that would be Chad Blake. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was my debut album. Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, you know, Chad is it, Chad is everything that you sort of want him to be. I remember we were recording at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studio, and we had Jerry Marotta on drums. Oh. And the first day, you know, we drove down the night before, and the first day when we met Chad, he was everything that you know you wanted him to be. He to me, he looked like a cowboy, that sort of a dusty cowboy that come off the fields of the plains of Wyoming. You know, he's got that sort of real vibe about him that's the sort of you just can't help but respect the guy you know and i spent four weeks with him locked in a room eight hours a day so you sort of get to get a feel for the guy you know and he's amazing i mean i learned so much from working with him just so many like i was sort of a novice going in there i, I you know i'd been in bands and i'd been on the road a long time and i'd done many many gigs you know you know how it is when you're starting out but in terms of recording i was completely wet behind the ears and i was so so such a novice that, you know, I didn't even realize that Peter Gabriel just offered me a cup of tea. You know, I said, no, no, I don't want a cup of tea, thanks, in the kitchen. And then I sort of double-checked, and I thought, oh, wow, that's, I, th I think I know that guy. And then I realized it's Peter Gabriel, you know? <laughs> that tea boy is Peter Gabriel. That was on the first day, too. <laughs> yeah, so we met Chad, and he sort of put down the ground rules, how he likes to work and stuff like that. And as we were working together, you know, you just got a feel for the guy, and he sort of taught me... Going from nothing to that was an amazing experience because he taught me several things, not directly. It's not like he was trying to teach me, but just sort of being in his presence, you learn certain things. You know, like, for example, one thing that comes to mind is the idea that a clean signal is the starting point, meaning that it's a given that you want a clean signal. Say, for example, a vocal, for example, you want a good, clean signal coming in and it's got to have a good tonality to it. But that's, that's just the start. The magic happens after that. So he was often using sans amps and saturation. And this is 2005, so saturation now is such a buzzword. It's such a, such a word that everybody uses. But back then, I'm not sure if it was such a buzzword. That, for me, was the biggest lesson, to look for the otherness in things, to look for the magic in things. You know, the clean signal is just the starting point. What you're looking for afterwards, specifically in a, in a place like real world, you're looking for some magic. And he would bring out instruments that I don't even know what they were called, you know, just these really interesting instruments. And the guys that I was with, the band, they were loving it too because, you know, we were just, it was like having this door opened in our minds, you know. We spent hours in the room and often we'd end up in conversations that had nothing to do with music. It would be like, I don't know, atomic energy, uh, climate change, photography, you know. And, and I think that was another big lesson that I learned, the idea that a song should be looked at as a piece of art from all different points of view. It should be it should be, be able to experienced in many sort of different formats. It's not just the recording and the tracking down a, a vocal. What you're aiming at is a work of art. So yeah, it was a, an amazing experience. You know, the whole thing was just incredible. Did your experience with Chad differ 
greatly from your previous experiences with other engineers or producers? Yeah, I mean, Chad is, is a whole different vibe. You know that you're in a room with an artist just by his general vibe and his conversation. It's, a, it's just a different experience. I mean, I've worked with other many other producers, but just the way he thinks, it's, it's more along the lines of an artist than a producer, even though you know that underneath it all, he's thinking of the technicalities and the engineering work and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, like I say, it was always that constant sort of looking for the magic, or not, not the magic, but looking to create something that was had another dimension. That's why he would record, you know, microphones in different positions and stuff like that. It wasn't, an, it was an unusual experience, but a very, an, an experience that stayed with me. Yeah, and, and do you think because he carries that, that underlying focus as not just a producer, engineer, but as an artist, that he just has a different perspective and can offer a different point of view in comparison to the traditional run-of-the-mill producer or engineer? Yeah, I think that I've worked with a lot of producers and I've worked with some very great producers. And it seems to me that the higher you go, the more artistic the whole vibe becomes, meaning that people's minds work differently. And working with really great producers, in their own way, they're just artists that do the other side of the console. In my mind, that, that, you know, that's, that's the way I see it. They are just artists that use a different medium. That's been my experience when I've been working with, uh, and, and I've been lucky, I've worked with many really good producers. And that's my sort of observation, that they're just artists in their own right, but they just have a different set of tools. And, and, and Chad is very much like that. You know, he's very much coming from how can we, how can our artistic visions meet? Can you remember any specific examples of a situation that he presented you with, whether it was a comment or an observation that made you think, wow, this guy really is a different type of audio professional? Yeah, we had a song called Avocado Cure, and I'd envisioned it as a sort of piano ballad. It was, it was a song about my daughter being born. And he just took it to a whole different dimension. And it took me a while to catch up with him. Like, often when I've worked with people, it's me coming up with the ideas. I'm sort of a very visual, creative person. But when I was working with Chad, he was sort of one step ahead of you, taking the song in a direction that maybe you you hadn't seen. So I remember we, we started, on this particular song, Avocado Cure, we started to see how we could, you know, elaborate on the song and he just put in these beautiful guitars that would just sound otherworldly and they didn't sound like guitars and your mind was sort of trying to catch up with it where he was thinking, you know, where he was going with it. And another thing as well is that up until then I'd done demos and, and, you know, just like everyone else, I'd done demos and you'd track your vocal at the end. Chad was really into live takes and I remember we had one song called Chinese Whisper, which was one of the better songs on the album ended up being played on radio a lot. And it was a, it, it's a song in B. Now, anybody that plays a piano knows that B isn't necessarily the most friendly key. It's quite, you know, especially for me, I'm, I'm more of a, a songwriter that plays musicians. I'm not a musician that writes songs, if you understand. So Chad said, we, you know, we should do this live. And like I said, we had Jerry Marosha on drums, and Jerry is uh, incredible. He's, he's a beast. And they set the piano up so that I could see Jerry. And I was like, Chad, I'm not sure I can do this live. You know, this is a really hard song to play on the piano. And, and he said, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Just, just go with it. You'll be fine. And I remember I could see Jerry and Jerry was sort of looking over at me and just laughing because he's, yeah, that's the way Jerry is. He's just amazing. 
And we nailed this song, and I think in about two takes. And it's <laughs> something that I don't think I would have ever have done. I don't think I would have, especially the song being a B, you know, it's quite hard. It's hard for me, at least. And we nailed it, and it's a great take, you know, and it's just all, I think, two live takes, and that's it. We, the song was done. To kind of conclude this discussion on this, I'm, I'm curious, what would you offer from the songwriter's perspective, from the, from the musician's perspective? What do you think makes a great engineer, producer? What is it that, that helps artists achieve what they want to achieve in the studio? What are you looking for? Sympathy. Sympathy. And I don't mean sympathy as in, you know, someone I can cry to. You need, a, I think the best producers I've worked with are the ones that are sympathetic to your vision. That's what I'm trying to say. So if you've got, you know, when you go into a studio, especially imagine I'm 30 years old, I'm in the situation where I'm in Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios. I don't know if I'm any good. I don't know if my songs are any good. I'm insecure. You know, it's a big thing for me. You know, I've been, this is a big thing in my calendar right now. You know what I mean? The last thing you need is a producer that shows any sort of disbelief in what you're doing, especially as a vocalist. You need a, someone who can be sympathetic to your vision and not just like agree with everything you said. And, and you know, we didn't agree on everything, Chad and I. You know, it, there was differences of opinion, but we came together. And it's that feeling of togetherness in the studio that can create amazing, just like a football team. If you've got a football team and no one likes each other in a football team or a soccer team, whatever kind of team you're in, mm -hmm. you're not going to play well. Whereas if you have a belief that you are doing this together and that you have a common vision, you can achieve great things. And it's the same with when you're in a studio. You don't necessarily need the best engineer, the best producer. You just need a person that believes in your vision. And then I think truly great, or you get the best out of the artist, I think, you know? Mm. I've also been with producers where they sort of show, like, they want you to know that that you are the artist and they're the producer, and that, that just doesn't work. That just does not work at all. Interesting. That's, that's, audience, if you're listening and you're an audio professional, you need to really take what Jack just said to heart, because I think that No, that... please don't. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure if that's right or wrong. <laughs> well, it's it's your perspective, and uh, and you are a musician and a songwriter, and I think that that's important for us to be able to listen to the people that we are working with to to team yeah. up with. Now, these days, you're doing a lot of your own recording, especially with COVID. You've started to well, I'm sure this. I know, I'm sure you didn't just start, but you went down the self engineering path some time ago. And so your yeah. blending of the two sides of the glass, as we'll say, started some time ago. In fact, there's a, there's a video that you've got in your YouTube channel about your iPad studio. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that still the focus of, of your rig? Matt, have you had anybody on here talk about iPad production? No, I haven't. And I'm asking selfishly here because I did buy an iPad Pro with the thinking in mind that someday I'm going to figure out how to do the podcast on that iPad. Matt, I got to tell you, I am all about the iPad. I love it. It's a revolution happening under our noses right now. Believe me, it is amazing. So I got into iPad music about two and a half years ago. Mm. And the reason why I did it is because I wanted to expand my live rig. I opened for Joe Cocker 10 years ago and I had the most craziest rig ever. I had Ableton Live, computers, 
APC40, FCB1010 on the floor. It was just ridiculous. It was, it was too much. There's a photo of me and it just looks like a cockpit, you know? <laughs> and then I, I couldn't connect with the audience. You know, I like to talk to people and connect to the audience. I couldn't do it. So the next gig I did, I opened, you know, I, I, it was another big gig. I opened for another big artist and I just went with a guitar. But I just thought that was not enough. So I looked into doing a situation where I could bring the iPad on stage. I fell down a rabbit hole. I came across all these situations where these apps are beautiful. They're $10 each and they're creating these most amazing sounds. Yes, there's a few sort of, it's like the old Moogs. You know those Moogs from the 60s and 70s where you got to plug a few things here and there? It is a little bit like that. It's not plug and play necessarily, although it's getting better. But I'm telling you, Matt, this is a revolution happening right now. Over the last 14 months, FabFilter have come into the fray, uh, released all their plugins on iPad, uh, IK Media, with their Mixbox. And these, these apps are beautiful. They sound beautiful. And it's amazing. And these apps cost $10 each. And I think that what you're going to see is that the next generation is very much going to be into the iPad because of the cost. You know, a lot of plugins are very expensive. And the one thing I love about it, Matt, is that it's such... A feeling of experimentation. The guys mm. that produce these apps, or they engine, you know, the engineers that make these apps, to my mind, they're like maverick geniuses, and they just—it's—it's it's a, it's a real sense of experimentation, you know. And I absolutely love that. And some of the sounds are incredible. So yeah, the iPad is very much a part of my situation. I mean, of course, I'm still using Logic and stuff like that, but just beautiful sounds, man. It's—it's it's amazing. Yeah, I did buy Cubasis when I first got the iPad Pro. And I bought all the Fab Filter plugins and have just really been experimenting. And actually, um, DPA, they're going to send me their binaural headset. And I'm oh, going wow. to plug that directly into the iPad and do a little experimenting. And might, might end up buying an iPod Touch to use as the recording device. But just experimenting with that ecosystem has been fascinating. And so when I saw your video, I was like, hmm, I have to ask him about that. So... That is an interesting thing, and uh, we could go down a huge rabbit hole with it, but I, I do want to shift topics on you greatly here, and I want to jump to this topic of tinnitus, tinnitus, potatoes, potatoes. Sorry, audience. We're <laughs> just get used to us calling it two different things because I respect Jack's, Jack's pronunciation, but I also am just so used to saying tinnitus. So we're talking about ringing in the ears here, and this is something that I think is happening to a lot of us. And it happens in different degrees. And it's for some, it's debilitating. And for some, it's just a minor annoyance. And for some, it's something that they notice when maybe they go to bed at night or if they're in a quiet room. Tell me about your experience with that. So the damage was done when I was in the band. I was in a band called Honeyman. And we worked really hard. We were considered one of the better bands in my city of Birmingham. So we, gig we, we gigged a lot. We rehearsed five nights a week. We took it seriously. That's where most of the damage was done. We rehearsed in a room the size of a, of a wardrobe. At 27, I, I experienced the first ring-in. It didn't really affect me. I carried on. I went on and made my debut album. Didn't use earplugs. When I made my second album, no need for earplugs. Then what happened was when I was about 35, 36, the amount of money that I was bringing in as an artist was not enough to, you know, I was a father. So I had responsibilities. So I started doing as many shows as I could. I was gigging everywhere in all sorts of conditions. Uh, you know, I'd go from doing stadium opening for whoever 
big artist and then going to like a small club and then going into like a, a convention or whatever, you know, I was just doing everything to bring in money. And what that meant was is that my ears were just constantly exposed and I wasn't using earplugs. Around about 37, I realized I had to do something about it. And I invested in a pair of earplugs, but by then the damage was done. By the time I got to 40, I was really experiencing a lot of problems and it was getting serious. And it just got worse. It doesn't get better. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing for an artist to deal with because you go through a whole series of emotions. I think there's three phases to, to tinnitus. There is the initial shock and the worry. Then you sort of carry on. Then there is the second phase, which is the, di the most difficult, I think. It's where you just, you wonder how much more you can take, you know, because it gets worse. It doesn't get better. And then there is the third phase, which is where I am at now, where you sort of have to learn to accept it. But it's incredibly difficult to get to phase three from phase two. And that's why I feel so passionate about spreading this information, because I feel that there is a massive, massive blackout. It just doesn't get spoken about. Like when I was in a band, all the musicians or all the producers or the live crew, the managers, nobody ever spoke about this. Like nobody. Like we, we would joke about the fact that we never used earplugs. But the trouble is, is it, it's not a joke. It really isn't a joke. It's got to the point with me that it's changed my life. My entire life is changed from it. I can't do the things that I used to do. So it becomes a situation where you have to rethink your whole your whole thing because when you go into phase two of, of tinnitus you start to think can i continue doing this and as a as a person that's dedicated my entire life to music to the thing that i love doing i mean i you know i dreamt about writing songs at 11 years old so it's not something that i that i went into because i you know i thought it was a, a jolly or something i went into this because i i love it so it's just incredibly difficult to to get to phase three which is where i'm at now how bad is it? How bad is the ringing in your ears? It's very bad. Right now, it's very bad. It's like a plane going off in my head all the time. It's like a jet engine going off. I wake up in the middle of the night and it's sort of, you forget and you wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, okay, wow, it's, yeah, it's very bad right now. It's, I'm, I'm going through what they call a spike. There's two, two sort of areas of tinnitus. There's a spike where you get an increase in volume and you've got to deal with it. And then you get habituation, which is where your brain slowly filters the sound out. And the thing with tinnitus, and, and this is what I really sort of would like to say to anybody listening to this, there are people in the world right now who are some of the smartest people that we know. There are scientists, professors, biomedical companies doing research right, right across the planet. And they still can't pinpoint exactly what tinnitus is. So when you sort of keep that in mind that some of the most intelligent people on this planet can't figure this out, 100%. They're very close, and I think that there's very much reason to be optimistic, but they're not there yet. So when you think of all that, and you think of how can I avoid that situation, how can I avoid getting involved in that very difficult world, and it's the cost of a $50 pair of earplugs, maybe. Or, even better, $100 and buying two pairs of earplugs, because the first thing you do is you forget your earplugs, so you need two, you need a backup pair. Mm -hmm. And that's the cost of avoiding this whole sort of situation. But the problem is, is that when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet, so we had local knowledge, meaning that the knowledge that we had was passed down between the few of us. But even now that we have the internet and we have all these forums available to us, I still see most musicians that I gig with don't use earplugs. And they did a study here in Norway, and they found that 38.7% of musicians have hearing loss. 
And out of that 38%, 20% suffer chronic tinnitus. That means that if there's two bands backstage and those bands happen to have five members, two of those guys are going to get life-changing chronic tinnitus. And still, with all this knowledge and with all this sort of people know about it now, like I say, when I was, grow- when I was growing up in bands, nobody knew. But, well, we knew about it, but we just didn't bother with it. Most musicians still don't use them. And it's, it's upsetting to see because I know the results and the results are really not pretty. Yeah, the earplug thing, I, I, was, I have these rants that I do on the podcast and I was talking about how I've paid for the expensive earplugs a couple times. Which one did you choose, Matt? I'm not sure which, one, which ones I did choose. I did have my ears filled with yeah. this foam and then they sent me these molded plugs with the little attenuators on them different decibel cuts of attenuation. And every time I buy those, I lose them. Like I straight up lose them. So I've gotten into the habit of just buying the containers of the foam earplugs because I just, I'm not, I'm not worried about the cost and I'm just stuffing them in bags in my pocket. And if I find myself in a situation that needs it, I quickly pull those out. Anytime I'm doing any kind of leaf blowing or lawn mowing, any yard work, or clearly at any kind of musical situation, I always have them with me. Do you think it's imperative that people get the expensive ones, or do you think that the foam ones cut it? No. I think that any any sort of earplug nowadays is fairly good. When I was researching my book, I came across this study that they found that most earplugs actually, they actually are the attenuation that they say on, not on the packet. The difference is, is that if you don't put the earplug in properly, that's what makes the difference. So say, for example, you have an earplug that's half in, half out. That's no good. That's not going to do anything for you. So if you need different types of earplugs because you just can't connect to the music, then you should change the filter, not have it half in, half out, because that's something else that I see a lot is, you know, musicians with it, you know, and I used to do it myself. But most earplugs nowadays are really good. Of course, you've got to check the packet, see what the attenuation is, that sort of thing. But most of them are really good. And if you've got anything between, you know, 25 dB, you're getting to really good attenuation. One of the reasons why when I speak to musicians, and and please believe me, I'm not the earplug police. I don't go around, you know, (laughs) asking, you know, backstage, is everyone wearing, you know, I keep my mouth shut. But what happens is often when I talk to people about it, if you talk to a band, you'll find that at least one of them is worried about it. At least one of them is having trouble with it. So that's how the conversation comes up because I don't go around talking about this all the time. But what I find is, is that, a lot of musicians, it comes in three categories. If, you, if you're dealing with musicians that are young, they can't afford them. Then you've got musicians that, like I did a tour recently, and they just don't think they need them because they've been fine up to now, and that's, that's going to be fine. And then you've got musicians who need to connect with the music. So they can't, they can't feel it. If they can't, if they can't hear it, they can't feel it. So the way I deal with that is the young guys who can't afford it, You've got parents, you've got grandparents, you've got Christmas, you've got birthdays. You've got to get a pair of earplugs because I'm the end result of it and it's not good. The second guys, they just think they're going to be fine. Well, that's true. Maybe you will be fine, but there's a chance that you won't be fine. And I wouldn't, if I could go back, I wouldn't take that chance. That's all I can say with that. And with the third category, the people that need to hear it to feel it, it doesn't wash with me. And I'll tell you why. When I was growing up, I was very insecure. I was a troubled teenager. Music was my only escape. I was bad news. I got into a lot of trouble. I got expelled from school, that sort of thing. I was not a good kid. 
And music was my only escape. And I felt like I'd found a brotherhood when I started to hang around with the rock community, you know, in Birmingham. There's a big rock community, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. They're all from that area, Duran Duran, Magnum. There's just loads of rock bands that come from there. And I felt like being in a band covered my insecurities. And the first thing I would do, I'd sometimes turn up to gigs, worse for wear, drunk, whatever. And the first thing I'd do is I'd turn up my amp. I would annoy my other guys in the band because, you know, we just done a sound check. And the first thing I would do is ruin the sound check, turn up on stage, turn it up to 10 and go. Sound was my blanket for my insecurities. So when people say to me, I need to hear it to feel it, I know all about that vibe because I've been doing it for years. Like I would do gigs and the bar staff would come to me and say, Jack, you need to turn it down. We can't hear the orders when I was doing club gigs and stuff like that. So I know all about volume being, feeling it sort of thing because I loved it. That doesn't wash with me anymore because when you see the damage that that can do to your ears and I know about it, it's just not cool. And I've found, and anybody listening to this that is one of those guys that needs to hear it to feel it, I, I've got an example to give to you. I was just like that and I had to change my mind. I had to change the way I think about it and something amazing happened. You know how like out of adversity, you know, great things happen, necessity is the mother of invention, that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I found, and this is amazing, man, I found that when I turned the music down, I became a better singer, a better songwriter, and a better performer. And here's why. When you turn the volume up, you're vibing to the volume. That's it. Your performance might be great, whatever, but mostly you're vibing to the volume. Same with the mixing. When you turn the mix up, it's because you're insecure about it. When you turn the mix down, you got confidence in your mix because you know you're doing a good job. And you know what happens? You focus more on that song than you'll ever focus in your life. Like I mix it about... 55 60 db which was ridiculous people laugh at me when i tell that i say dude i can't go above that if i start hitting like 80 db for a couple of hours i'm done i have to take three weeks off and i got mix of i got mix of producer friends that mix at 80 db all day long and they laugh when i say 55 60 i got an apple watch keep the decibel counter on my watch oh interesting I put it by my head so i can see but you know what happens matt you go inside the song like you've never done before you focus on the reverbs you focus on the arrangement and everything gets better because you have to be inside that song to hear it because it's so low. And then when you turn it up at the end of the mix or whatever, you turn it up, you discover that actually the work you've done is beautiful and you don't need to listen to it for eight hours a day at 80 dB. I'm telling you, man, like the same, um, the same when I do performances, I used to turn that, oh my God, I used to turn it up. I, like I say, bar staff would say, turn it down. Now I keep it at a certain level on stage. I'm about 82, 85 dB. And you know what? I'm singing like I never sung before because I am deep inside the song because you've got to focus. And it's, and it's not easy. It's not easy. Like I've got minus 35 dB earplugs. They're actually hunting earplugs. They, people that go, you know, like people that go shooting rifles and stuff like that. Those are the ones I use. And when I went to the ENT, she knows I'm a musician, whatever. She goes, Jack, how do you, how do you perform with minus 35 dB? They're actually minus 37. Minus 37 dB in your ear. How can you perform when you're performing at 85 dB on stage? You focus, you train the part of your brain, and it's amazing what you can achieve when you have to. Necessity, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, that sort of thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, 
and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You know, I just want to say that for those that are struggling to afford the molded earplugs like we're talking about, like I was saying before, at the very least, go to the local drugstore chemist where you can buy the little canister of the squishy foam earplugs, what my father used to call helicopter earplugs. He'd always have a drawer full of them in our house because he would occasionally he would be traveling in helicopters for various reasons, which we don't have to get into. But uh, squishy earplugs are a great start and a cheap way to go. But the foam, the foam formed earplugs that you can get really can give you that clarity and detail and protection and also a flat frequency response because the foam earplugs do one thing really well. They cut out all the top end, most of the upper mids, and what you're left with is low mids and low frequency information. Therefore, it's a little hard to gauge what exactly is going on. What Jack's talking about I think allows you f- more clarity, more um, focused listening. So I have so many things to say. First off, you're talking about, you know, being in places where people are blowing this off, you know, oh yeah, I got the ringing in the ears or oh, I don't wear my earplugs or whatever. You know, I've been in a lot of situations where some people wear it as a badge of honor for some men. It's it's a very macho thing. Well, I don't need any earplugs. And it's it's really funny. Well, it's actually not funny as they get older it really just does not wear well on the body and it really becomes a problem. So what would you say to those who are ignoring the problem? You know, if you can imagine a wall and if you're a tough guy, you can throw yourself against the wall a certain amount of times, but eventually you're going to get up and say, I can't throw myself against this wall anymore. And that's what happens with your ears. Your ears are some of the most beautifully engineered things ever known. I mean, you know, if you actually look at the mechanics of the ear, it's just a beautiful uh, engineered piece of engineering. You know, it's just beautiful to see. But they're also some of the most sensitive parts of your body. And we use them like a hammer. We use them like it's a piece of iron, like just, you know, just, you know, you know, like a hammer that you've had for like 50 years, you never need to replace. But really, they're more like a violin. They're like, you know, like one of those Stravinsky violins or whatever they're called, you know, those beautiful, expensive violins. That's how they should be treated, because that's actually what they're like, they're very sensitive. And the problem is with, with, with ear protection is, and then, you know, again, I'm not preaching, I was the classic case of that. 
you don't really take ear protection seriously until it's too late. So my advice to anybody that thinks it's a badge of honor, like I read about it, I'm being sensitive to the cause. When I read about these things, I get upset. Like I, I was reading the other day that there was a Swedish band that did a gig at 143 decibels. I know that some of the ACDC in the, in, I think in the mid 90s, early 80s actually, were at like 125 or 30 dB, I can't remember. I've heard people say that some gigs were so loud that it was actually distorted waves. They couldn't actually hear the sound waves. They were just hearing distortion. When the guy would speak, it was just distortion. And, you know, I would read the comments and people would laugh and say, yeah, my ears are still ringing. It happened, you know, it was a gig that happened 30 years ago. And like I say, I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to be the ear police here. I'm just saying that your ears can get to the point where your life changes. And if I can stop one person from their life changing because of that, I'd feel good about that. So like I say, I'm not trying to preach. I'm just trying to say that your ears can change your life, whether you know it or not. Like just for me to go about, just to get a train, just to get an airplane, I have to protect my ears. Because if I'm like, you know, if I'm on tour and I'm getting on a train and a plane, like I was doing a tour of Scandinavia at the end of 2019, I've got to prepare earplugs for this and ear defenders for the plane, that sort of thing. It can change your life. So for anybody that thinks it's a badge of honor, yes, we used to think the exact same thing, and I'm not trying to preach or talk down to anyone, man. I really mean that, but we used to think the exact same thing. And out of the band that I was in, the other three guys are fine, but it's a numbers game, and I wouldn't play that numbers game. If I could go back, man, I wouldn't play that numbers game. I'd protect my ears night and day. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you were saying about the mechanics of the ears, because I found a video on, online I'm going to put in the show notes that is absolutely intriguing. And I know that it's simple biology we're talking about here, but really, if you look at the mechanics of the ears, if it was a piece of gear or a consumer electronics device that you had in your hand, I can guarantee you that we would get cases, we would get protection, we would yeah. buy insurance for it. Imagine if you took the mechanics of the ear and put them in one of these devices, like like I'm saying, like a phone or an instrument you'd have the biggest, most badass case for it or any of that to protect it. But because it's in our, our head, I think we take it for granted because we never see it except in diagrams. And it's, it's really, it's a work of art in many respects. And it's very fragile. It's beautiful. And for us as, as audio professionals, it's the one piece of gear that we have to have. Yeah. People talk about what's your must-have microphone or plug-in or whatever. Solid hearing is what you have to have to do this. Yeah, and, and that—that's the thing, Matt. Like, uh, like when I tour, you know, I, I've done tours with amazing musicians, amazing people that have dedicated their entire life and their their whole existence on this planet, the well-being of their families, everything relies on their ears. Mm -hmm. And yet, there is this sort of bridge to be crossed. It's like, uh, you know, it's okay. I've been fine up to now. So, I really wish. I could express to people how difficult it can get. And it's not just a psychological thing because I'm, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm a, a fairly upbeat kind of guy, you know? It really does test you to the very limits. You know what I mean? You mentioned ACDC a minute ago. I believe it was on the last tour for ACDC pre-COVID that Brian Johnson, singer of the band, he couldn't go on tour because if he did, they said he would have gone deaf because of the abuse of his ears over the years. And as a result, Axl Rose had to step in for him. Now that 
is a sad state of affairs that if you you don't take care of your your equipment, your ears, he can't show up to do his job. He can't show up to entertain us all because, I mean, with all due respect to Axl Rose, I'd much rather see Brian Johnson in ACDC than Axl Rose. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that I've thought about as well, Matt, is that I wonder how much, in the old days, I wonder how much alcoholism and drug abuse may have been. I wonder how much it might have been a contributing factor something that we never spoke about before in the old days or it just wasn't spoken about i wonder if that had anything or if it contributed in any way yeah well i think they say that about old drunks is that the hearing starts to go so maybe there's i don't know that's that's a saying that i've heard people say who knows if there's any validity to it or science behind it but yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know whether that was the case. But I, the reason why I say that is because it challenges you so much. When it really goes wrong, it's a really big challenge. So I wonder, I've often thought about, you know, the stories that you hear about these amazing artists that were struggling with some form of addiction. I wonder if there was, it could possibly be that some form of tinnitus was was also involved, you know? You have a video about your pointers on dealing with it. And I wonder if you could touch on some of those points. I think that because there's no cure for this, when you go to the ear, nose, and throat doctor, the ENT, a lot of the time you get like a shrug. You get that sort of, well, there's nothing we can do. And that's, if they can imagine for a second what that does for a person, especially a musician or a, someone working in audio, the idea that their ears are threatened is a pretty big deal. So I think that what a person, someone who is struggling with tinnitus, they have to go within themselves and they have to... You've got to be philosophical about it. And I don't mean that in a mystical way. You've got to try and rethink your situation. So if anybody listening to this is actually struggling with tinnitus, you've got to try and imagine your life, all the big important things in your life, how much space they fulfill, your family, your love of music, your job. Try and imagine how big those things are. And then look at tinnitus and how see how small that becomes. Because you can overcome tinnitus, but it becomes a mental game. It challenges you to the absolute extremes. But if you can reimagine the problem, like for example, I give myself as an example. My tinnitus is really bad. It's, a, it's, a, it's an everyday struggle. But in a way, I turn it around and I say, well, you know what? I'm actually grateful that I can still hear. I'm grateful that I can still do this. So even though I have this tone that changes my life, I can still be a musician. I just have to be really careful. So you have to try and reimagine what you've still got. Because if you look back to what you've lost, it becomes more difficult for yourself. What I mean by that is if I look back on how I used to rehearse for five hours a night, I used to blast that music all the time, and I can't do that anymore, then I'm going to get depressed and down about it. Whereas if I turn the problem around and say, well, actually, I'm grateful to the fact that I'm still here. I'm still making records. I, my last record was my most successful record I've done so far. So you've got to try and reimagine the problem. And, and the example that I give in, in the book, A Musician with Tinnitus, is this. If you imagine Muhammad Ali, he started out as a young man, flying like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. Beautiful. He was amazing. The, the, the world of boxing never seen anything like it. Then he got older and he faced challenge of time. The stamina, he, he couldn't do it anymore. So he changed his tactic to a rope-a-dope style, which is leaning back on the ropes and taking punishment. I'm thinking George Foreman fight. So he turned a problem into a challenge. And he overcame. And you see many, many examples in sport. In all areas, you see many examples of people that overcame their challenges by rethinking their problems. 
And that's something that as people with tinnitus, especially very, very bad tinnitus, I'm not, I'm not talking so much people that sort of have it and it's there. I'm talking about people that really struggle with it. If they can reimagine what's beautiful in their life, what's important to their life, and compare that to what is tinnitus, tinnitus becomes very small. But the, the important thing is, is that you've got to get your frame of mind in the right place because it can get very dark. I've been there. I know what it's like. But if you can just hold on to the things that are beautiful, like, for example, I'm lucky. I love music so much. I love writing songs so much. I could never give it up. I would face any challenge to, be, to remain a musician. I really would. I have. And I'm lucky that I have that because it's like Nietzsche says, where there's, where there's a why, a person can put up with any how, if you understand what I mean. So try and focus on what's important to you and reduce tinnitus in size. And it is very much a mental game. And that's why it's so difficult because people are often alone. They don't want to talk about it. They go into their own insular world and that's not good. You mentioned uh, flying earlier and some of the preparation that you might do. Can you go a little more in depth into that? Yeah, so I was opening for Heather Nova at the end of 2019, and we toured Scandinavia together. Five, ten years ago, it would have meant for me putting my guitar in my bag and off out the door. But now I've got to plan my earplugs for my stage, so I use the Minus 37 Hunters. I've got to prepare a pair of foldable, collapsible ear defenders that look like headphones. They're black, so they people looking at you don't think you're wearing ear defenders. They think you're wearing headphones. I have to prepare entering into a gig. So say, for example, you enter into a venue. Is there going to be drums blasting out at 110 dB for the main act sound checking? You sort of have to prepare all these things. And the reason why is because if you get a bad experience, it's, it can put you off the concentration of your show. And like, it was, you know, it was a nice, it was a nice tour to be on. So another, another tip for musicians would be to talk to the sound guy. Make friends with the sound guy. That guy is the mo- or the sound girl, whoever it is, the sound guy or girl, whoever it is, that person is the most important person in the room for you. And I go up to them and I talk to them and I say, hey, look, I'm in a situation here and blah, 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 blah. Can you turn the monitors off? And the first thing that person says, you want them off? I said, yeah, I want them off. Can you just turn the whole thing off? So they turn them off. So that, that means I can set up on stage knowing that those monitors are completely off. I'm not going to hear any pops. I'm not going to hear any feedback. And then I bring them up in increments of 15%. And another, another tip for musicians is, is that when, whenever you think you need your stage volume louder, it's often insecurities. So what I do is I start with the monitors off and I bring in a little bit of my voice. And if I feel like I'm going over 35, 40%, you know, the limit that I normally set myself, I stop for a second and I say, is this insecurity? Am I being insecure? Like it's a big gig, there's a lot of people here. Am I being insecure or do I really need that extra sound? And often it's the case that I don't, I'm just being insecure. I can bring it down a bit. So it's these forms of preparations that a person without tinnitus doesn't need to think about. But I want to tell you this, Matt, and I want to, I want to say this to the people listening. My tinnitus has made me a better songwriter. It's made me a better singer. It's made me a better producer. And I'll tell you why. I'm working with my, within my limitations. I think the greatest artists work within their limitations. Think about Leonard Cohen. Think about Bob Dylan. These are some of the greatest artists we've ever known. And they've worked within their limitations. When I didn't have tinnitus, I used to try and find a million different song arrangements, try a different million songwriting techniques. Now I'm limited. I can't spend eight hours a day on a, on a guitar trying to write a song. So I work with the limited tools I have and I've become a better songwriter, a better musician, a better singer and a better producer because of it. Again, it's about rethinking your situation. Hmm. Tell me a bit about your book. So I put a video out 
there was a lot of response, a lot of people on Instagram contacting me. And I've been thinking about it for a while because I feel like I got to a point now where I just accept it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay a musician. I'm just going to have to deal with it. So you, you sort of accept your fate, you know? But I realized that there was a lot of musicians out there struggling. I mean, I'm talking a lot. There is a lot of musicians that are struggling with this. And they contact me. They, they sort of get in touch with me. So I started writing a book, a generalized book, called Overcoming Tinnitus, 12 Tools That Helped Me Overcome Tinnitus. And what happened was is that I was writing this book, and because I think in analogies of music, I kept putting examples of music and musicians. And I finished this book, and I gave it to my girlfriend to read, and she's like, Jack, this is great, but you got to take out these musician stuff. Because most people reading this book are not going to be musicians. So they're not going to be worried about the sound on stage being 85 dB. Why would a person be interested in that? So I found myself having to edit half the book out because it was all specific information for musicians. But I felt bad about that. I thought this was great information for musicians to have. Five years ago, I would have cried if I had this information because it would have helped me immensely. So I decided to do two books. One is a generalized book, the mental tools that you need to overcome and practical tools such as earplugs and stuff like that. But then there's a second book, I wrote them back to back, that specifically talks to musicians and how they can change small things, like, for example, talking to the sound guy, traveling with ear defenders, those sort of things, you know? And I feel good about writing them. I'm not a writer. I'm not trying to pass myself off as a writer. I'm just the guy with turnters. But I feel good about it because I'm sensing, I'm getting reactions from the book. And it's, you know, the reactions are pretty good. And I'm, if I can help just one girl or guy out there that's, that's struggling, if I can just help one person, it makes me feel better about my situation, you know? Because it, it's sort of a selfish thing. It makes me feel good as well. I will include a link in the show notes to both books for the audience. And what I'm curious about, is there any kind of audio that you listen to that distracts you from the problem? Yeah. So like I say, Matt, it's, it's very much a mental game. So you've got to find tools. You have to find tools. And my first and foremost tool is my mind to just keep my strength, to do things I like, reduce my stress do music because I love it. But when things get really bad, there are hearing aids that you can use that have masking sounds in them. So you take off the hearing aid part because I hear like a dog. I don't need any hearing aid. But you can use masking sounds within them and they just bring your shoulders down a bit. Your shoulders just come down because you get a bit of peace for a bit. And also there's apps. There's lots of apps. Like the whole world of, of tinnitus, it's a revolution right now. A lot of people are getting involved. A lot of people are trying to help. So there's apps on your phone that you can use that have sound therapy, they have three different tones so that it confuses your tinnitus, so that it confuses your brain. It's a distractions. Distractions are really important. And it distracts your brain and it just takes over. You just keep it just below the level of your tinnitus, but it keeps your brain distracted and it really helps. That's what I go to those things when I really need them. When I'm really in trouble, I've done a gig, whatever, I, you know, I've been recording. I use those and they just help me, but I try not to use them all the time so that I've got something to go to. And I'm curious if, have you identified, like, is there a particular frequency that you hear? And is it the same frequency day to day or does it shift? It's shifted. It's fluid. It shifts. It gets louder. It gets deeper. It okay. used to be a high, high pitched noise. Now it's more of a rounded noise, which actually helps me because I'm not sure if that's acceptance or whatever, but it, it helps me because they're doing amazing research. They're trying to now confuse the brain and sort of connect positive emotions to your tinnitus. So for example, I just read this morning that they're trying to do sound therapy where the brain associates the tinnitus tone to like birds chirping 
outside noise, you know, so it's more beautiful feelings that you're feeling towards it because, again, it's a very much a mental, it's very much how you feel towards it. So with me, the tone that I've got, it's fluid, it changes over, over, over a period of years, it changes, but it's just there and you can't get away from it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going to assume that this is a form of it. Like when I have these, I'm wearing these Audio-Technica E40 in-ear headphones right now for this interview. And when I have them in, I can hear a very faint, what I would say is probably in the 17 kilohertz range. It's really high, and it's but it's very low and in the background. When I pull these out, I don't notice it as much. And the minute I step outside and hear the birds chirping, or the minute I put on some music, or if I put on former WC, I guess, George Vlad, who does field recording, puts out these beautiful recordings that he's done all over the world. Like if I put on one of George's videos with the sound of morning dawn, or I think he calls it the, you know, the dawn chorus. If I put on one of those, I don't even notice it. Yeah. If I could live outside, I'd live outside. In fact, I might go and live in a tent or something. Because when you're outside, you don't notice it. Like, yeah. I'm not sure if it's, a, I think it's a combination of being distracted. Again, it's the, it's the important thing of your mind being distracted. That's so important. It absolutely is vital for your brain to be distracted and not think about it. But it's also the, the acoustics of it, just like your eyes. Your eyes, like when you go for a walk, it's really good because your eyes, I've had problems with my eyes as well. It's really good for your eyes because it's constantly having to adjust your balance. It's constantly having to readjust itself, right? And it's the same with the ear. The ear, when it's outside, it's dealing with so many different acoustics that it gets confused and it just sort of lets go of that one tone that's in your in your head. So being outside is beautiful. I love it. I take the dog for a walk. I, I mean, I can still hear it, but I don't think about it. When I've got earphones on or when I'm recording a vocal, whoa, it's fun. You know what I mean? You can hear it real loud. So again, that is one of the tactics to deal with is do stuff you like. Go outside, go for walks because you won't focus on it. And focusing on it is part of the problem. Like when you put your earplugs in, and you can hear it, all of a sudden you can hear it, you're thinking about it, you hear it, you think about it, it goes like a loop, right? Whereas you take them out, you do something else, you get a coffee, you're not thinking about it anymore. Yeah, and you know, it's like they say that if you're sitting and staring at a computer monitor for an extended period of time, they always advise getting up and going outside or at least looking around the room so that your eyes are not so fixated. So maybe it's maybe there's some parallel there to the ears where take your ears out of this environment take them outside and expose them to these other sounds. I want to give you another example, Matt. So I did, I did a, an interview with this person that's very well known within the tinnitus sort of community. And he said to me, tell me three colors in your room right now. And I said, I can see black from the speakers, beige and brown. And he said, tell me the smell in, in, your, in your studio. I said, well, it smells a bit musty because it's sort of a basement studio. And he said, you see the difference? I said, no. He said, when you tell me three colors, you tell me those colors without qualifying them. When you tell me the smell... For some reason, your brain engages and you feel like you have to qualify that thought. He says that the point of mindfulness, which is a big thing in, in the tinnitus sort of healing therapy, being mindful, is being present in the moment. He says when you describe colors, you just say, you say it's this, it's that, it's this. When you describe the smell of it, you started to engage your brain. So being distracted and not thinking about your tinnitus it goes along the same lines. You're out for a walk, you're not thinking about your tinnitus, you're doing other stuff. Whereas when you're in, the, in a room... You're sort of focusing on it and you can't take your brain off it. So that's why mindfulness is another really big technique with therapy for tinnitus. Hmm. Wow. Great, great stuff here, Jack. And 
something that we just don't talk about very much. Plus, for an audio professional, it's a bit of a, I think that there's a fear. I think there's a, they, they fear that people are going to say, oh, you have a ringing in your ears? Oh, you can't work. People aren't going to want to work on or want me to, you know, if I say to you, hey, Jack, I've got tinnitus, you'll say, oh, you can't work on my stuff because you're going to, you're going to screw it up or you can't hear right. It would almost be like telling somebody that you've, you're deaf in one ear or something. There's a stigma associated with any kind of challenge to the hearing system. I went through that. I went through that. I, like about five years ago, I sat down with my girlfriend. And I said, you know, look, what do you think? Do I keep it to myself or do I, I've got all this experience. I've got all these emotions, all these thoughts about it. And I asked people, some people said, no, don't tell anyone. You'll lose work. And I was scared. I was scared that my income would go down because I was scared that events or gigs or tours. But I benefited from myself. I'm, I can't advise anyone whether they should or not tell people. That's, that's their own decision. I, I, can't, I don't want to give any advice on that. But all I can do is give myself as an example. It helped me immensely because it helped me open up. It helped me be honest about it. It helped me find tools. And another thing, it helped me connect with other people that are specialists in this area. I'm not a specialist. I'm a guy that's got tinnitus that writes about it because I'm, a, I'm an emotional guy anyway. But by opening up, I've connected with so many people that are specialists in this area and have given me great advice, and it's helped me immensely. So like I say, I can't advise people on whether they should tell, tell others or not because it's a, big, it's a big decision to take, and that's a, a decision they have to take themselves. But I can only give myself as an example. I was in a studio in London in 2019, working with the Studio Rats, by the way, an amazing band. These guys are top, top musicians. And we had to film a video in a studio. And we were working, you know, it was, it was all top of the line stuff. And I just had to go around to people and I said, look, you know what? 10, 15 years ago, I'd have stood one meter away from the drummer, James Ivey. Yeah. And I would have loved it. But I can't. I just can't. And not one person in that room said they were all cool with it. They were like, no problem. We'll work around it. So, like I say, I can't advise anyone on that because I understand it's a big thing I, and I totally get that. I've been through it myself, but all I can do is give myself as an example and it's helped me. Yeah, I've, I've seen that video of you and James and Paul and great stuff. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, they're, like, they're I, like I said musicians. before the call, you, you, got a, you have a great voice and uh, thank you. Very nice to listen to. So, well, this is all fantastic. I'm going to include everything I can in the show notes. And if you have anything you can add to that, you know, I'm going to include your books. I'm going to include the, the thing on the, on the hearing system. Anything you can offer up, send on over and we'll include it. Because I think the key here is, is we want people to get knowledgeable as much as they can about this and not be afraid to bring it up with people. Because um, while I definitely have a mild ringing in my ears. It's not debilitating for me. And talking to you makes me more aware of it and makes me extra cautious. In fact, I, I, tur I turned the volume down on the headphones here as we were talking because I was like, yeah, I'm going to turn this stuff down. So it's good. Whether you're old or whether you're young, the knowledge is important. Absolutely. Well, so where can people find out more about you, Jack? I'm online. JackRubinacci.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm active on YouTube a lot, as you've seen. So yeah, all the, all the usual mediums. All right. So audience, get ready. Show notes, they're going to be jam-packed, full of links and information that will uh, teach you about Jack, teach you about tinnitus and, and all of that. Well, Jack, real pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad that we could connect. And I, I do want to give a shout out to James Ivey and thank him for connecting us. 
because I think this is a super important topic to musicians, audio, audio professionals alike. And uh, thank you again. And Matt, can I just say thank you so much for having me on the show. I think you're doing a great service to your audience by having this as a topic is not something that's spoken about a lot. So I want to say thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And yeah, I, I hope it was interesting for your audience. I hope so too. I hope everybody uh, listening get, has gotten something out of this and is going to pay more attention to it and be aware of it. Awareness is key. Well, Jack, you take care and thank you again. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jack Rubinacci here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you do like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review, whether that's written or just uh, five stars. That really helps out the show greatly, and I would appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.